The particularly challenging piece with authorization is it's it's really hard to pull it out of the application. Authentication is often done as this kind of like front door check. Like mm-hmm. you're logged in, you have your credentials, wherever it is, and, and from totally. there you're, you're good. They were pushing email magic links and password lists and right, getting you in the front door and knowing who you are. That's yeah. the step they're trying to handle with the SDK API for developers. And it's great. You can make that experience like really slick. So it's just like for the developer, they just kind of don't, they sort of forget about it. You do get that like Stripe-like experience. Authorization is a tricky one because it's like very interwoven with the app itself and I mean, we can probably go into that later, but that's that's kind of like some of the challenges we're solving is around that piece. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. Today, we are joined by my frequent co-host, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. You're editing currently my piece on the metaverse. You're looking for a little more profundity. I just wanted to get out a few, you know, musings. I want to do like a Monday musings, let people chew it over. You know, I don't have, I'm not bringing the big insights. I'm bringing the casual observations. Yeah, definitely a, a new idea, you know, get people talking. It's an old idea, but I'm new to it. That's the problem. So today we have a great guest joining us. We have Sam Scott from Oso. Sam, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. You've lost me already with your metaverse thing, so we're off to a good start. Good. See, that's how <laughs> new it is. What my my premise is that you're living in it, you just don't know it. You're on you're on the road to the metaverse whether or not you know it. But Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what is Oso? Yeah, so I'm I'm Sam. I'm the CTO and co-founder at Oso. We're a startup who, you know, as a mission, we're trying to make security more accessible for developers. That's that's kind of mm. our bottom line. More specifically, we've built a product that helps developers with authorization. Gotcha. Can you tell me the difference between authorization and authentication? I've written API docs and I always get it confused. Yeah, I mean, API for APIs it's particularly hard because there's this like authorization header that's doing authentication. It's horrendous. Uh, <laughs> generally, you know, people group them as auth and kind of hand wave which one they're talking about, which is, you know, it's kind of fine. But yeah, so authentication, it's all around, you know, identity, like, you know, who, who are you? you know, the classic, you know, you go to whatever website and you log in, username and password, that's, that's the authentication piece. Authorization typically happens afterwards. So now, now that I know who you are, what are you allowed to do? You know, what, what data can you see? What actions can you take? That kind of thing. So tell me if you're familiar with this company. If you're not, we don't have to go down this road. But recently I was talking with the co-founder and CTO of a company called Stitch. And it sounded like they had a similar premise, but for authentication, which is like, this is too hard for developers these days. People want to get their projects up and running. They want to make it easy for users to come and be safe. So we'll be the stripe of authentication. Are you in a similar role, but for authorization? And then we tease those two things apart? Yeah, I think in, in a sense. And I'm, first of all, I, just, I love the focus a lot of companies are taking on security for developers. It's, it seems like it's rising a lot. The particularly challenging piece with authorization is it's, it's really hard to pull it out of the application. Authentication is often done as this kind of like front door check. Like mm-hmm. you're logged in, you have your credentials, wherever it is, and, and from totally. there you're, you're good. They were pushing email magic links and password lists and right, getting you in the front door and knowing who you are. That's yeah. the step they're trying to handle with the SDK API for developers. And it's great. You can make that experience like really slick. So it's just like for the developer, they just kind of don't, they sort of forget about it. You do get that like Stripe-like experience. Authorization is a tricky one because it's like very interwoven with the app itself. And 
I mean, we can probably go into that later, but that's that's kind of like some of the challenges we're solving is around that piece. Yeah, I mean, break it down for us. Like like we said, you know, some of what happens when you get to the front door can be done almost without interacting too heavily with what's inside of the app itself. For you, talk us through a little bit of, yeah, sort of the mechanics, because it sounds like, right, it's more like knowing what's inside of this service and what role or responsibility does this user have within our within our walled garden, within our domain. Therefore, we know what they are allowed to touch or read or write or not. Yeah, exactly. So you just mentioned, you know, roles or responsibilities, right? So there's, you know, this concept of role-based access control. It's it's one that, you know, almost every enterprise or, you know, business business to business app is going to is going to use. It's it's where you decide who can do what based on the role they have and at like a very simple level, it often breaks down as as just like an admin or a member. You know, if you're an ad- admin, you can invite other users, you can, you know, maybe modify the, you know, organization settings and things like that. And, you know, members have the, you know, regular streamline access to the app. But like within that, right, you're, you know, we're, we're talking about probably a multi-tenant app, right? So you have users belonging to specific organizations. They can only do things for like that one organization, right? So even just at this basic level, right, we're already saying what you can do depends on the organization you belong to, the role you have in that org. And then, you know, maybe the thing you're trying to access, is, it, is that, does that belong to the same org or not? You're already kind of getting into this difficulty of just trying to, describe who can do what and it's very much very much based on this like kind of application data and the you know the modeling and data model you have in your app yeah i think security is super important a lot of this authorization happens at the uh, api call level right i mean it it depends i mean i think you you sort of end up with like various different layers and it's sometimes it's not always obvious like which layer you've actually even done the authorization at so like at the at the API level, you, you tend to get some of those kind of broad checks where it's like, you know, have you have you logged in at all? What kind of user are you? Maybe it dictates what kind of endpoints you can be hitting. But as you sort of get into more more complicated applications, uh, you know, we use like GitHub as, a, as an example of one, which has got like really compelling authorization stories, you know, where you need to start understanding like, you know, if you are the person who created this issue, then you're the one who can close it. But you can also close it if you're an admin of the repository. And at that point, it really starts getting like deep into the like app code, into the controllers, inside the business logic. So there's really no other way to do it when you need to go that granular. Right. Like if I were to head over to your webpage and see this, it says batteries included authorization. Like what are you trying to convey there? Because I think I understand from what you said at first, right? This is a little bit more complex. We need to like not just give you something simple you can use as a front door, but get inside, understand your business logic, understand, you know, the pathways and statuses and roles and responsibilities you've defined. Like when you say batteries included, does that mean that it's powerful on its own, but easy to customize for the client? What are you trying to imply there? Yeah. So there's, there's kind of two parts of it, right? So like the kind of low level under the surface, you know, what OSO is, there's, you know, there's a policy engine underneath it. It's this kind of like very powerful, flexible tool for expressing who can do what in your app. The batteries included piece is specifically, you know, we have been, you know, working in this space for like three-ish years at this point. So we've seen a bunch of those patterns already. So instead of just saying, you know, here's a, here's a powerful tool, go, go builds. We want to include those batteries and be like, okay, we'll give you those best practices built in. Like here is, here is how you should think about structuring that authorization logic and you know here is a you know an sdk that you can add to your app that's going to encode some of those best practices of you know what errors to return and you know what to do with authorization and uh, things like that gotcha gotcha yeah i think i've seen a lot of uh, authorization systems use oauth2 and that's always complex i've worked with developers that didn't quite fully understand it themselves <laughs> right 
but I think Google came out with an internal authorization system, right? Can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this was back in about 2019. Google released this paper on a system they have, this internal system they have called uh, Zanzibar. And I think they described it as like a global scale consistent authorization system, something like that. And I think they worked on this from you know 2013 or something like that. And it's it's basically how how Google does authorization at Google across like all of their services, right? From Google Docs to YouTube, you know, things like that. And there's like a couple of there's a couple of really interesting parts of Google Zanzibar. It's like number one is they have a they've sort of come up with this authorization model called like relationship-based access control. You know, it's like a more general version of roles in a sense. And it's, you know, you describe sort of like I was doing earlier, what people can do based on these like relationships between data. So, you know, this repository belongs to this org. And if you have a role on this org, then you have this role in the repository. And you sort of, you know, almost like trace through those edges of a graph. Right. Because, you know, we, we use Google Docs and you can have Google Docs at so many organizations, right? Yeah. And you can have granular permissions on Right. Or you can invite someone document. to a folder and then they have access to the subfolders and subfolders and subfolders and then the files inside those subfolders. And, you know, the, the permissions kind of cascade down, down like that. So there's like one interesting part, really interesting part, is just that model. And then I'd say the second interesting part is that they made that work for, for Google Scales, which... I think is something like, you know, hand, this system handles like 10 million client queries per second. That's like 10 million authorization decisions per second. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, like on your site, you, you mentioned a couple of clients here, some of whom I'm familiar, like we use Intercom here at Stack Overflow. But I, I guess, you know, when you have these examples, is it possible for you to talk us through like what they were struggling with or like where the pain points and the friction were and how you helped out, you know, an Intercom or a Wayfair? Yeah, so a lot of what people are looking for is I think in part a sort of in part a mental model, in part just just a sort of a certain amount of consistency or, or someone else who's just like done this thinking around, you know, where the sharp edges are of authorization or like what is the right, you know, interface to expose to developers for authorization. Authorization is typically something that people just sort of ad hoc built themselves from scratch internally and they have kind of various different flows and, you know, they haven't anticipated all their future needs right at the beginning, right? Like that's completely understandable. So what I think what ends up happening is at a, at a larger company, you have these systems that have been you know, refactored a number of times and no one really understands quite how they work. No one can really see the full picture of it because the code is kind of split up in, you know, all throughout the code base. And so kind of one of the things you can do with Oso is, is kind of consolidate that into like one place. So you just, you just have your authorization logic in, in like Oso policies and then your app, you know, in your business logic, your app is just calling out to Oso. It's just, you know, Oso, does Oso say this thing is allowed or not? And that means like you can just like in that, in that movement, now you can see everything in one place. It's something that I think is easier for people to wrap their heads around. It's a bit more concise. So that's kind of like often step one. And then step, step two is then often, you know, extending it to do something more powerful. Maybe they want to do some more fine-grained things with like attribute-based access control and, and things like that. On the actual uh, API calls, are you spitting out tokens for people to use? No, so we're, we're entirely we're entirely uh, on the backend piece right now. So you know the the general flow or assumption is you know user comes, they authenticate, they log in in your you know app. You're probably going to fetch like a, a user object or a user model, and you pass that through to Oso when you need to make an authorization decision. You know, can this user do this thing to this resource? That's like the core inputs that we take to to make that decision. On the on the UI side, though, there is a there is an interesting sort of again uh, 
place where you know this authorization tends to kind of sprawl out into the app. One of the really common problems that we've heard from people is how do you make your UI sort of authorization aware, right? Like if the user is not allowed to delete this thing, maybe we shouldn't show them the delete button because that's just going to be an annoying experience. They hit delete and they get like an error pop up or something. And uh, so, you know, how, how can you like make that information available to the front end so that you can you know render things a bit nicer? Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of move towards uh, stateless apps. Mm-hmm. So having that information stored somewhere is a lot harder if you want to be completely stateless. Right. You're not just rendering it from the, the back end and filtering out like just in time or something. Maybe you're... So that, that's an interesting one. And, and it's sort of one of the one of the piece of flexibility we, we have in the in the product is to kind of let you return like the list of permissions a user has for a particular object. So you can right. kind of do that right. filtering at the front end. I love um, that. So not just making it more secure, but less frustrating for people who don't need to trip themselves up with authorizations they don't have. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, user experience is like my number one drive for authorization. <laughs> Honestly, it's ev- yeah. everything, everything we do, we talk about that. It's like... Yeah, I, I feel like security is both complicated and boring. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of people don't really want to mm-hmm. deal I, with I mean, it. I find that fascinating because like, aren't the complicated things the, the most fun? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You have a PhD in cryptography, so... Yeah, yeah I, mean. I guess that's true. <laughs> there's a lot of tedium and there's a lot of frustration around some of these like more complicated things, especially with security where it's it's like unfun complexity. Uh, right. I don't know, you mentioned OAuth and I mean, my eyes still glaze over when I'm trying to look at like the eight different OAuth flows that I need to pick from. I'm like, please, why? <laughs> yeah. I was having a pretty interesting conversation this morning, which is a little off topic, but kind of gets us to the idea of what, yeah, people are allowed or not allowed to do in a system. So there's a big story today about Polychain, which is like a, you mm. know, a DeFi network uh, that had the world's largest hack, whatever you want to call it, but a, a ton of money was taken out of the system. And so the argument that I've been listening to sort of back and forth was if you're an advocate of DeFi, you say like, it's not a black box, like a bank, you know, like you can go in and look at all the code and you understand the rules and like the rules are set and agreed to in consensus. So in that sense, it's more transparent and it's safer. You know, the problem is that a, most people who end up trading these networks don't read the rules. They couldn't, you know, like they they don't fully understand the code that's being executed and they're all allowed to interact with other chains and that creates like new permutations of what happens or whatever. But it's, it's interesting to think about like, right, at this point, people are out there working on in these open distributed systems where people are authorized to do one thing or another. And then you wake up one day and realize somebody's figured out they're authorized to take, you know, like they hacked it, but really what they did was just, you know, a better reading of the rules. They found, you know, a way to make the code do what they wanted and walked away with six. Yeah. That it brings up, it brings up a, one of my like favorite moments during my like PhD when I was you know, still in academia was, I was at like a sort of round table thing where it was like half academia and half industry. Mm. And people were talking about trusted execution environments and, and things like that. And people were like, it was very much, you know, the academics going down, they're like, oh, but, but what if some compromises this? What if they, and I remember someone from, from uh, Amazon was like, yeah, at that point it becomes a, a legal problem. So, you know, <laughs> we have, you know, an auditor will come into our, you know, bunkers, you know, bunkers, yeah, yeah. data centers, where there's like armed guards and barbed wire. The auditors will come in and they'll look at the system and be like, yep, no one can access that. It's like, right, this, right. it's not, it's not an academic security problem anymore. It's a legal thing. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was essentially, yeah, Polychain sent an email after it was all done being like, look, you stole so much money, you know, the government's going to get involved. So please give it back. Like they were like, the people with the guns are going to show up soon. So Sam, we've been talking a lot, Ryan and I, with different guests about like, when does it make sense to start on a path towards microservices, Docker and Kubernetes? Can you be a big company that needs scale and flexibility? Or can you start as, you know, a small startup? 
maybe you know it's a little bit more work at the beginning, but these days not even so much. And then you have all this opportunity to scale. So when you think about a tool like Oso, is it just as reasonable for a five-person team that's looking for product market fit to start using you now so that everything makes sense? Or is this something people come to you with, as you sort of pointed out, when they've got a lot of internal logic, but not everybody can see it in the same way, it kind of needs to be consolidated and perhaps streamlined and improved? That's a, that's a great question. So we, we've actually, if anything, we have you know, optimized more for the, that early stage startup. We've you know, put a lot of focus on kind of making this quick to get started with, right? If you're using Python, it's pip and solo, so you're, you're ready to go. You know, it's, it's an open source library, so there's like zero barrier to using this. There's nothing set mm-hmm. up. And yeah, we, we, you know, we focused on, on making the you know, simple things really, really simple, the kind of complex things possible. And so we, we kind of do have this like sort of bimodal distribution where it's like very early users, they, just, they don't want to even think about authorization. They just want someone to take care of them very healthy startup mindset right there. Uh, they just, yeah, they use Oso and they're, and they're kind of good to go. But, you know, for people who are hitting those kind of frustrations and refactors, they kind of see the the power and the flexibility of it and they kind of equally like the idea of having a simpler interface. Gotcha. Yeah, it lets them focus at what they're good at. Exactly, right? yeah. How does the pricing model work for scale? Like how does a five-person startup use it versus a big enterprise company? I mean, so it's all, I mean, it's all open source right now. So the pricing model is the same. It's free for, mm-hmm. free for both. You know, typically what we see, as you, you spoke about, you know, microservice environments, and, and this is actually how, uh, for example, Wayfair are using this. You know, you have your microservices, you probably have like a central, you know, user management identity service that's, for example, like minting minting tokens or you know, logging users in using OAuth or something like that. And then, the, you know, the individual microservice in this case will be able to take that information in, you know, the roles on a user, that kind of thing, and use that to do authorization. The sort of the nice thing around that is you get to stay sort of true to the kind of microservice architecture where each service manages and owns its own data, right? If you have, you know, I was using GitHub, right? You have like the issues service or something that that's the, that's the data it manages and it's got all the context it needs to, to do authorization for that. It kind of goes back to, we have this kind of like golden rule we speak about, which is you should build authorization around your app. You shouldn't like re-architect your app around authorization, and that's that's kind of what we see with the use of the library. It's like in a monolith, you use a library, you're good to go. As you start like mm. peeling out peeling out microservices and splitting up concerns and like moving data out with them, that's fine. Like you just you know put the library on that as well, and and like you you're good. So like coming back to Zanzibar, which we you know spoke about that earlier. You know the Zanzibar approach is you centralize like all of that authorization data. So everything mm. that says like what belongs to what, who, what roles do people have, you put all that in one big central place. So you end up like refactoring, re-architecting your entire app around that like central data store. You know, the benefits is it's, if you're Google, you kind of have this like incredibly hard data scaling problem anyway. So it kind of helps you address that. But I, th- I think, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't make that kind of change because you want to do authorization centralized. You should do that because you have like a data scaling problem. Hmm. So why did you make it a library instead of a service? Yeah, what is the business model here? <laughs> yeah, I, it, honestly, it was we try to make it a service because it's a it's a way easier pitch from as a from a business standpoint, and it's you know easier to develop and manage when you can just push out updates to your service. The reason we didn't is because we you know we're focusing on the the what's the best thing for the developer, and we just couldn't we couldn't justify the need to send your application data to a third party service to do authorization. Mm-hmm. You know, it's simple. You know, user belongs to an organization. This project is an organization like. Do you really want to be synchronizing that data with an external service so you can do authorization? 
Or would you rather have a library that is embedded in your app and works with the data you already have? Right. Gets around any sort of PII. It gets around issues. PII issues. It means the like integration story is like super simple. You, you import the app and you can write you can write your policies like directly over your application data without re-architecting or re-engineering anything. And because we were really optimizing for you know, that developer experience and the ease of use, it just it was the only way we 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 saw that being being feasible. And so, where do you hope it it develops from here? Like, is it your venture back now? You want to make it the best solution, and obviously, you know, have it be as widely used as possible. How does it develop in the future? Yeah, so I'd say you know the, the version of the library we have out right now is already pretty great. It's it's like incredibly helpful, and you can see it from from you know the people using it. And we have some stuff that I'm very very excited about that we're working on now that will be coming out sort of shortly. That I think takes that that stuff to the next level and is really going to oh, okay. make this. It's, it's going to take it from being a tool that helps you like solve a complex problem to a tool that makes the problem not even the complex anymore. Mm. <laughs> so okay. we need to get that stuff done. We need to put that stuff out there. And basically, we just want to get as many developers using that as possible. In the future, we have, you know, we have some ideas of stuff we're going to build uh, on top of that as a commercial offering that would be kind of a more traditional you know, SaaS offering that provides like additional functionality on, on, on top of that. But I mean, ultimately, the library itself is staying, staying open source. All right, I'll read a lifeboat badge, which we do at the end of every episode, to give a shout out to someone in the community who helped us, and then we'll say our goodbyes. Awarded two days ago to Evgeny Leeson, how to find UI web view in a project and replace it with the WK web view. All right, well, if you want to know, there's a lifeboat badge winner who has helped out the Stack Overflow community and left some knowledge out there for everyone. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Ryan, who are you? I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog and the newsletter. I'm a ghost on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. Sam, who are you? Where can people find you online? And where should they go if they want to check out more about Oso? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Sam, the co-founder and CTO at Oso. Uh, you can find out more about us at osohq.com and on Twitter, I guess. I'm Sam Ososos. You'll be able to find that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll put, we'll put the link in the show notes. That sounds good. <laughs> thanks. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you soon.